Uh, some people are asking about the sheets. The sheets are the same sheets we've used for the last couple weeks, so you may already have one of those. That's why there's not as many back there. Revelation 16. We've been in the uh, Revelation 14 through 16 here for the last few weeks. Uh, last week we got up to the sixth bowl here, and uh, that's where we're going to be picking up here tonight is Revelation 16, verse 12. So let's go ahead and quick word of prayer, and then we'll get started then. Heavenly Fathers, we just come to you. We are just thankful to be here and just thank you for who you are, Lord, and just thankful for the time to come here tonight just to truly worship you, learn of you, and to grow, Lord. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. Looking forward to um, this weekend, uh, Sunday's message. should be a lot of fun to stop and take a little bit of a break from Romans and to do a message there about Christmas. And uh, our last Wednesday here before Christmas is kind of an interesting topic to be doing because it's the Battle of Armageddon. <laughs> Not really the type of Christmas message that uh, we normally do, but wanted to continue on in our study in Revelation because we've got to this point here of Armageddon. This is kind of the climax of a lot of what we've been talking about. And it's kind of amazing, this concept of Armageddon, this is a word that is thrown around in our English language a lot, and even the secular world uses it. Do you remember this last fall when California was doing that big construction project? And it was supposed to be a mess. And I remember they called it Carmageddon. You know, it's what... We do. We take this idea of Armageddon and we kind of put it together. Well, Armageddon is really just mentioned very, very briefly here in the Bible. And to fully understand what Armageddon is, if you would just read the passage here in Revelation 16, you would leave yourself here with your scratching your head a little bit. Tonight, to really fully understand what Armageddon is, we're going to be in Daniel, we're going to be in Ezekiel, we're going to be in Zechariah, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians and Matthew, we're going to be all over the place. Because to truly get what this event is, we have to get all the verses and we have the time together. So we left off in verse 12 of Revelation 16, and we've been talking about the bold judgments. These bold judgments, as we have said, are the climax of God's wrath upon the earth. Now, if you're just coming here tonight or you haven't been here for a couple weeks, we have to make this point abundantly clear. Back in Revelation 14... We talked about how God gave numerous examples of the gospel message. We had the 144,000, which were 144,000 Jewish people, men, that were raised up to go out and spread the gospel of Jesus. We have angels proclaiming the gospel in Revelation 14. We have angels warning to not take the mark of the beast. We have angels warning that wrath is coming, judgment is coming. So now that we're finally to the point of judgment, we don't want to sit here tonight and say, well, see, this is why I have a hard time with God. Because God's just the angry guy that lives upstairs that likes us to cast people into hell and he just likes to destroy things. No, we just spent a whole chapter of Revelation 14 talking about God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, and warning the world of this is what is coming. So when we talk about Armageddon tonight and we talk about millions of people dying, we have to remind ourselves, as it says in the book of Ezekiel, God has no joy in the death of the wicked. None. This is not the Lord being happy that he finally gets to be vengeful. No. This is thousands of years of sin that has not been paid for, is now being built up, and the earth is being judged. This is the final step before we get into the millennial reign of Christ, which is the thousand-year reign of Jesus. In Revelation 19, Jesus returns. Revelation 20, the thousand-year reign is set up. What you have here tonight in Revelation 16 is the first step in that process. So for God to come back and reclaim the earth, as we've said numerous times, he's got to clean house first. Armageddon is him taking out the dustpan and throwing it out the window. So this is how God cleans house. 
And just to make this abundantly clear, to be repetitious, the point of repetitious, he gives the world numerous chances to repent. Numerous chances. And we have seen how the world has rejected that. They did not want that. Look at the end here, verse 9 of Revelation 16 that we went over last week. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him the glory. Verse 11 of Revelation 16. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. God's given them chances. You know, we, we, I tell a lot of stories about the boys at home, and, and we joke a lot about Kenan, and about Kenan's our third guy. And uh, Kenan, for some reason, has got like a double dose of sin nature. I don't know what it is. We love him, but he's, he's a tough one. And Kenan will tell him sometimes, Kenan, we're giving you an opportunity to be good here, man. Show us that you can be good, please. Not, not begging, not pleading, but just show us that you can be good. You can be a good little boy, right? And I almost think about that in verse 9 and verse 11. It's almost like God is up there in heaven before he gets to Armageddon saying, Come on, people. Come on. What, what else has to happen for you to come accept me? I mean, there's literal angels flying around. You saw the two witnesses killed and then resurrected right in front of your eyes. The 144,000 have been preaching the gospel. There's all these, these signs and wonders going on up in heaven. I mean, the sea's been turned to blood. The water's been turned to blood. What, what else has to happen? I don't think God goes into the sixth bowl judgment of Armageddon happy. I think he goes in there almost regretfully saying, I shouldn't have gotten to this point. Why does the world keep rejecting the Lord? And this is where it takes us to Armageddon, verse 12 of Revelation 16. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates, and his water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon, or some of your translations may say Megiddo, same place. Now, what do we have going on here? Well, you see a divine appointment in verse 12. The river Euphrates is dried up so the way from the kings of the east might be prepared. Who are the kings from the east? I've heard numerous pastors teach numerous times on this, and the truth of the matter is we don't know. Now, if you've heard us study through the book of Revelation, if we don't know, there's not a reason to spend a lot of time on figuring out who something could be if we don't know. Some people have said, well, it could be a, a Chinese army, it could be a Middle Eastern army here. We don't know. Obviously, if the Euphrates is dried up and they're coming from the east... I'm not a real smart guy, but I'm not dumb. If you just look at the map and you go to the east of the river Euphrates, you're dealing with the Middle East. So we can probably safely assume it is some type of Middle Eastern nations that have come together as one, and they're sending an army now towards the Valley of Megiddo. Now, where's the Valley of Megiddo? Megiddo is right near Jerusalem, I should say. It's between Jerusalem and the sea. And so they're going to be heading over this way. Why are they heading over? That's what we have to get to and talk about. But before we get to why are they heading over, how are they coming over? Did you see this in verse 13? How is this for a strange passage? Three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon. We know the dragon represents Satan. That's already been discussed. Out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, now the mouth of the false prophet. When you see this picture in verse 13, this is talking about a demonic influence. Now, before you think I'm making that up, always let the Bible be the commentary of the Bible. How do we know it's a demonic influence? Verse 14 tells us, for they are spirits of demons. What you have here is you have a demonic influence going on, bringing these millions of people together to this valley of Armageddon. God is allowing it, and God's going to serve it as a purpose. And I don't mean to make a light of millions of people being killed. 
but it's almost like if all the mosquitoes of the world wanted to come in one big ball. I'll just spray the one big ball. It's a lot easier than chasing you all down. Well, this is what's happening here in the Battle of Armageddon. All these ungodly armies of men are now coming together in one central location. That makes it a lot easier. Now, we have understood where they're going now, the Valley of Megiddo, located there to the uh, west of Jerusalem. We know where a good chunk of them are coming from, from the east. We know why they're coming. They're being demonically influenced to go here, according to verse 14. Now, how does this all come together? Now, to bring this all together, you have to go back to the beginning. And to truly understand what Armageddon is, you have to understand it. Let's go to our first slide up there, uh, Dustin. To truly get this, it starts back in Ezekiel 38. There's something in the Bible called the Battle of Gog and Magog. And this is in Ezekiel 38, 5 through 6. I put a lot of the references down because we're not going to have time tonight to go to every single passage. And there's a lot of passages that we have to talk about. So, Battle of Gog and Magog. What happens in the Battle of Gog and Magog is a group of, from Russia, from the north, come down with a group of Arabic nations from the south that join together, and they're going to invade Israel. Now, this shouldn't seem too crazy of an idea. Some other studies we've done, we've put up a map of Israel, and we've shown how Israel is surrounded by nearly, if I remember the number correctly, it was either 600 to 700 million people that claim to be Muslim. Now, you got to stop and think about this, and I'll, and I'll try not to get on my Israel bandwagon. You've got to stop and think about this for a second. This, this little nation is completely surrounded by people that, first off, won't even acknowledge that the nation exists. And if they do acknowledge that the nation exists, they just acknowledge the nation exists so that way they can destroy it. If you go out and study the history of Israel from 1948 on, there is no way that that nation should still be around. It has fought numerous wars over the last 50 years and has won numerous wars that they had no business winning in any way whatsoever. The world hates Israel. It really does. Why does the world hate Israel? I think the answer is very simple. It's because God loves Israel. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the world is under the sway of the enemy right now. The Bible calls the world it's under the sway of, of the uh, God of this age, Satan. Well, God says, I love Israel. Well, if God loves Israel, I don't think the enemy is going to like them. They're God's chosen people. And now you kind of see this group of Arabic nations coming and invading from the south. And that, that makes sense. Russia? See, I'm not going to get into a lot of diplomacy or anything like that. Russia has a very large amount of Muslims that live in Russia. Surprisingly, a large amount of Muslims that live in Russia. Russia also likes, should, I should say, if you look at the relationship between Russia and Israel over the years, diplomacy has not been very strong, has not been very good in any way whatsoever. So this is not a far-fetched thing to see a group of Muslim Arabic nations combining together to hit Israel from the south and Russia to take them from the north. The Muslim nations have never proven over the years to be able to defeat Israel on their own. They have tried. Go back and once again and look at the wars in the 60s and the 70s there. I think it was in 68, 73, and even when Israel first became a nation back in 48. No, they had never been able to do it. Now you put Russia with them, that's a little bit different story. Well, what happens is, and you can look at these nations before you think that we're making these things up. When you look at these nations mentioned, the ones on the left, Persia, Kush, Put, and Meshach, and Tobol, are what the Bible calls their names, because that's what the names of those nations were roughly 3,000 years ago when Ezekiel was written. Where are they now in present-day world? Well, Persia's Iran, Ethiopia, put as Libya, and Meshach and Tobol represents Turkey. And so you can see these nations coming together to go and fight Israel. Now, when is the Battle of Gog and Magog going to happen? Next slide, please. Because this is kind of an interesting one, is when is this event going to happen? Next slide, guys. So what you have here with when is, when's the first one? When Israel is gathered again. 
And the second one was in Israel's at peace. So you can check out the references there. Once again, I'm not trying to skip through the verses quickly. It's just I know we don't have a whole lot of time to get into a deep subject here. So Israel's gathered again. Has that already happened? That's already happened. That happened in 1948. Now, once again, I'm trying to stay off my bandwagon. Guys, nations don't just exist like that. That just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen that the world gets together and says, you know what? Let's just start a nation for the Jews. That's a God thing. That's an absolute God thing. So before 1948 happened, to think of Israel coming back together as a nation, that was mind-blowing. I've talked to saints that were saved before 1948, and I remember asking them, saying, what did you guys think when you saw this happen? They said it was unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's miraculous. There's not other words to describe how the world comes together and says, hey, let's, let's, let's take this land here and make a nation for the Jews that are generally hated by the world. And then as soon as they become a nation, they get attacked. Then they get attacked about 15, 20 years later. Then they get attacked about another five years after that. And they still are around. So the first one's already happened. Israel's gathered again. The second one, look at this verse in verse 11 here. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful peoples who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Now, be careful, my personal opinion here. When it comes to the battle of Gog and Magog, there's, there's generally different ways to look at this. Some people believe that this battle will happen before the rapture of the church happens. I, I don't see that happening. Some people believe that it happens at the end. I don't see that necessarily happening. I see it more in the middle, and this is why. Right now, can we say that Israel is a land of unwalled villages? No way. No way. Israel is probably one of the most fortified, if not the most fortified nation in the entire world. So when you look at verse 11, my personal opinion, take it or leave it, I don't see a land of unwalled villages. I don't see a group of people living safely, dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. I see a nation that has its guard up all the time. I just read in the paper a while ago that Israel has been debating within the private councils of themselves to possibly do a first strike attack against Iran. Now, why in the world would they be worried about doing that if they were a city, a village of unwalled villages dwelling safely? They know they're not dwelling safely. What's one of the main reasons why these Muslim nations don't try to hit Israel again? Because Israel has nukes, and they've made it very perfectly clear that if they would admit they had them, they won't admit they have them, but if they admit they did have them, they would use them. Well, the Muslim nations don't have those. And so right now, you don't see verse 11 happening. So this is why my personal opinion is this. For the battle of Gog and Magog to happen, it has to, in my opinion, happen once the Antichrist comes on the scene. Because one of the things the Antichrist does is he brings a false peace to the Middle East. That's his claim to fame. Next slide, please. And so he brings this false peace. What happens? Well, so since this false peace is going on right now, Israel is let their guard down because there's this fake false peace. Well, Russia... And the Muslim nations jump at this. Russia invades from the north. Now, how are they taken out? Consumed by the fire of God. Now, I don't want to ever see unsaved people die. But I kind of want to see this. Not to be gross, I do. This, this militarily might of a nation, Russia, steamrolling south to take out Israel. And all of a sudden, fire from heaven comes down and consumes them. Does, not, does that not sound very Old Testament-ish? That's God. That's God protecting his people. So that's what happens to Russia. Well, the Antichrist takes care of the group from the south, according to Daniel 11, verses 40 through 45 there. See, the Antichrist is kind of watching out over Israel. 
And he's not watching out over Israel because he loves them and cares for them. I don't want to make it sound that way in any way whatsoever. The Antichrist is watching out over Israel because, once again, he's trying to do this false peace that's going to bring this falseness to this nation, and they're going to be dwelling with this idea of thinking that they're okay. And the truth of the matter is, they're not okay. So what you have here is God takes care of Russia from the north, consumed by fire. Antichrist takes care of the group from the south, Daniel 11, verses 40 through 45. Now, what happens then is the Antichrist rides this, and you know what I put in quotes, victory into the abomination of desolation. I'm going to throw out my opinion here again real quick. Take it or leave it. Now, obviously the Antichrist can take credit for defeating the group from the south. Now, he can't take credit for defeating the group from the north, can he? Well, maybe he'll try, though. See, this is the thing is, the Bible says when we study Revelation 13, one of the things that the Antichrist and false prophet is going to do is they're going to do all these little miracles. These miracles are there to point people towards them, to take them away from God. So what you see here is it looks like the Antichrist rides this victory into what is something called the abomination of desolation. He looks like the great hero, doesn't he? He took care of the people from the south. I don't know if he's going to try to take credit from the north. I don't know what he's going to do to explain the Russian army being toasted. I don't know what he's going to do to explain that. Somehow, he rides this victory to the abomination of desolation. Now, we have to talk about what this is. Can you go to the next slide, please? This is all building up to Armageddon. Just don't think I'm taking you here on a wild goose chase. So what is the abomination of desolation? This is where the Antichrist goes into the temple and declares himself to be God. Now, remember from a few chapters ago, we talked about how the temple is going to be rebuilt. The temple is not, be, is not built now. The temple is going to be rebuilt. And we've talked about this for numerous times, that we started out with the tabernacle that Moses was in. And after that, we had the temple that uh, Solomon built. And then after that, you kind of have the next temple there that Herod kind of did a big project with. And that temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by Titus. And the Jews have not had a temple ever since then. But yet... This is not something secretive. This is quite out in the open. If you remember that lesson when we went through this, we read to you the news articles. We showed you the pictures that there is a movement in Israel right now where they are remaking the temple garments. They are remaking the clothes that the priests are going to wear. They're training in priesthood. They have remade all the elements that are needed to be made. If you know temple history here, they're trying to breed a red heifer for ashes of the red heifer. Um, depends on who you ask. Some people think that they may know where the Ark of the Covenant is. We don't know. But there's this idea here that's brewing, and this temple is going to be rebuilt. That's a fact. It's going to be rebuilt. So this temple is going to be rebuilt sometime during the reign of the Antichrist. And what happens is he's going to go into the temple and declare himself to be God. You can look at this. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2.4. Who opposes, it's talking about the Antichrist, exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God. See, now when this happens, huge light goes on for the Jews. They realize they were wrong. They realized they put all their hopes and dreams on this guy that was going to make them a great nation to keep them safe, to make them a peace. And what happens at this point, though, is the Antichrist now turns on Israel and he tries to destroy the Jews. And if you remember our study from Revelation chapter 12, this is where the Jews flee into the wilderness for the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Tribulation is a seven-year period. The first three and a half years, the Antichrist is rising in power. The last three and a half years is after this event of the abomination of desolation. This is kind of the turning point, if you will. And at this point of the abomination of desolation, he goes in, and now he tries to destroy the Jews. The Jews flee into the wilderness for the last three and a half years to be protected. Look at this passage here. This is a very famous one of Daniel 9.27. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That covenant is referring to some type of deal, some type of peace treaty. Peace treaty. 
And, and take my word on it, and I can show it to you afterwards if you don't believe me here. And Daniel 9, when it refers to a week, that week is referencing seven years. So it says he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, seven years. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice. Why? Because he went into the temple and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. You can see how we now get this phrase, abomination of desolation. So what happens here is he has this fake peace treaty for seven years. At the middle part of the seven years, he then goes in. He breaks this fake peace treaty. He declares himself to be God. He turns on Israel now, and now he tries to destroy Israel. And as we've said numerous times in our Revelation study, this is where everything goes downhill. I don't like to use this term because I don't mean it the way it sounds, but it's the best term I can think of. It's at this point where it literally becomes hell on earth. And this is where the trumpet judgments happen, the bowl judgments happen. And this is now bringing us up to what is Armageddon. Long introduction to make sure we understand how we get to this point. Now, real quick, before we get to our next point here, does anybody have any quick questions, comments about anything we covered thus far? Ryan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And this is the thing about the River Euphrates. If you would go to anybody in the world and ask them, what's the most important rivers in the world? If you're from America, you're going to say the Mississippi. If you're a student of world, well, you may say the Amazon River. You may some, say something like that, the Nile. I'm telling you right now, the only river you need to care about is River Euphrates. <laughs> from a biblical standpoint, the only river that really matters is the River Euphrates. The Mississippi, the Nile, and the Amazon, no one really gives a hoot about them. If you want to know biblical history, the river Euphrates is vital from Genesis to Revelation of understanding the importance of this river and the representation that it is. It's smack dab right there in the middle of the Middle East. See, this is the thing. We have such a focus on us as a nation, America. And I don't want to get on a tangent about this, but if you watch a lot of the news, the top headlines that happen usually deal with some type of idiot person out in Hollywood doing something really stupid. Okay, that really doesn't have anything to do with anything. If you want to follow the world, just look at Jerusalem. If you want to know what's going on in the world, just follow Israel. And you'll have a much clearer picture of world events because it's, it's Jerusalem, it's Israel. That's what matters, and that's the biblical things that we need to keep our heart, mind, and soul focused on when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, Ryan. Yeah, it's... A, it is. It's just a, obviously I've never been there, but the pictures I've seen are just a huge open valley, open space. And I believe it was Napoleon that when he first saw it, it said it was just the perfect place to have a battle. And so this valley is where literally millions upon millions of people are going to converge. And once they're converged there, that's when the judgment happens. Yeah, Marv. Right. Two, two thoughts on that. First off, what we think he does by putting all the scriptures together, it looks like he puts up some type of altar in the Holy of Holies. That's what it kind of looks like he does, is he basically says, remove the ark, put my image up in there. Number two, what are the Jews going to think of that? From a biblical standpoint, it looks like supernaturally that's when the light goes on for the Jews. Now, are some going to reject, and are some going to not reject? I can't answer that question. This is why, because I know very intelligent people that I've heard say both things. Are there going to be some Jews that are going to still side with him? It's quite possible. But the Bible keeps using this phrase, all Israel shall be saved. Now, does that mean all? Now, when I'm teaching through Romans, what I always tell you guys, all means all. So is this just a clause to that, that all doesn't mean all? I don't know. So to answer your question, Marv, I can't answer that because my personal opinion is I think the vast majority of Jews are going to have that spiritual light go on and I think they're going to flee. Are there going to be some Jews that are going to still stick with him and side with him? Sinful nature says probably, yeah. But I think it's a spiritual thing because the Bible makes it clear 
like I said, the light just goes on for them. And if I can try to stall here and talk to you and find a passage at the same time, I'd like to do that. And I may not be smart enough to do that at the same time. But I believe it's in Zechariah chapter 14 off the top of my head is where it refers to that. And I'll let you guys take a look at that since we're getting short on time. But I believe it's in Zechariah 14 where it talks about the light going on and them finally getting it and realizing it. So to answer your question, I think it's a supernatural thing where their eyes are opened and revealed to who God is at that time. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's something called a dual prophecy, a dual fulfillment. It was uh, yeah, Antiochus the fourth there went in and he did exactly what you said. He slaughtered a pig in the, in the altar, the holy of holies, and desecrated it. And um, if you do study out Daniel, and I'll tell you right now, Daniel eleven is is I think the hardest chapter in the entire Bible. Real quick side note, it was probably gosh, it's probably back in ninety nine. I was serving out here as an assistant teaching Wednesday nights, and, and Jim said, "Hey, I can't make it." Pastor Craig said, "Hey, I can't make it some Sunday." And he goes, uh, can you fill in for me? And I said, sure. And he goes, uh, you know, I'm in Daniel. You can just continue on with it as Daniel 11. I said, yeah, okay, Daniel 11. I went and got to Daniel 11, and I thought, I think Jim skipped this Sunday on purpose because I tell you, that is one of the toughest chapters in the Bible, just the symbolism and the, just the meatiness of it, but it's packed full of information. I don't know how many times we've already referenced Daniel 11 tonight. If you want something to chew on, go home and read Daniel 11. You'll really be blessed by that, just, just the meat that's in there. Lots of neat stuff in there. Saw another hand up. I thought maybe I didn't. Okay. Oh, sorry. Nope. You're going to say the same thing. Great minds think alike. So what we have here is this takes us now to this idea of the abomination of desolation. So let's go to the next slide. So path to Armageddon. So this is what's going on here. Once again, we're referencing Daniel 11. The Antichrist is in control. He's in control. Russia's kind of been taken care of. The uh, southern nations have been taken care of. But so you can see how this all comes together now. News from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with a great fury to destroy and annihilate many, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. So what is Armageddon? Armageddon is where he goes and plants the tent. Now, if you go look at a map and look, where's the tent at? Between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. The glorious holy mountain represents Israel. Guess right where you're at. Armageddon, Valley of Megiddo. Now, I tell you this, this is the thing about prophecy in the Bible. Is the Lord already said this back in Daniel, thousands of years ago, thousand years before Revelation was written, that this is where the event's going to happen. John says the same thing. The Spirit's bringing this all together. So you can see what's going on here. So the Antichrist senses that there's this rebellion brewing. The Antichrist senses that something is going on and that there's these armies converging to take him out. And so what happens is they're all going to meet. If he's planting his tent right there in the valley of Armageddon, if we just read in Revelation 16 that the Euphrates is dried up so this army can come towards him, what do you see happening? You have the Antichrist's army. You have the armies of the world that are rebelling. And where are they all meeting? Armageddon. The Valley of Megiddo. Let's go to the next slide here real quick. So Armageddon. Rebellion against the Antichrist, Daniel 11, Revelation 16. Is it also the final assault against Israel? Because what you have here in Zechariah 14, that chapter we just mentioned, the armies of the world are going to go try to take out the Jews. See, they don't like Israel. That's why they were initially attacking them in the Battle of Gog and Magog. 
And so what you have here is you have this whole event coming together. You have rebellion against the Antichrist coming to Armageddon. You have a final assault to try to take out Israel coming and against Armageddon. How is this being happened? This is happening because there's this demonic influence that is bringing them all together here in uh, verse 14 that we've already talked about where the enemy is doing this because he's going to try to do this to defeat the Antichrist's enemy to make control. So the Antichrist is going to be doing this to defeat his enemies. And very simply put, I don't want to simplify what's going through God's mind. God basically says, I got everybody in one area. And that's when he returns. So go ahead to the next slide, please. So what happens then at the climax of Armageddon, Christ returns. Destroys the armies of the world. Revelation 19, 11 through 21. He's got the Antichrist's army. He's got the rebellion army. They're all in the same place. That's when Jesus returns for the second coming. And what happens after that? And we'll get to this here in another couple of weeks there in chapter. Satan's bound for a thousand years. We go into the millennial reign, etc. But what is Armageddon? Armageddon is after the battle of Gog and Magog, the Antichrist rides that victory into the abomination of desolation, which leads to further rebellion against him, where the armies of the world come to rebel against them, to take out Israel. They're all gathered together in the valley of Megiddo. That's when Revelation 19 happens for the second coming of Christ, and that's where he comes down and destroys the armies of the world that then ushers in the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years. So that's what Armageddon is. Now we've got some closing thoughts and stuff that we hear we need to share. But does anybody have any quick questions, comments about this thus far that we've gone over? Okay. Oh, Marv. Does he really think he can beat Jesus? Yeah. Right. Satan and I haven't really talked much. Um, but if you're asking me what Satan's thinking, you know, Marv, you probably know that better than me, what he thinks. Um, but uh, I still remember what you said Sunday. Um, I, does Satan still think he can win? I'm going to go on a limb and say I think he does. Because what's going to happen here, if you look in a couple chapters, Satan's bound for a thousand years. In Revelation 20, verse 7, Satan's released, and he has another rebellion. I, I think he still thinks he's got a shot. That, that's my personal opinion. I, say, I think he still thinks he has a shot. Um, I know one pastor that says he doesn't think he has a shot, and the best analogy he used, he says, imagine you're standing there by the pool, and you see three, four of your friends come over, and they look like they're ornery. He goes, what are they going to do? They're going to throw you in the pool. So what are you going to do? You're going to take as many as you can with them. Well, if Satan knows he's going down... He is a destroyer. His name means destroyer. It's one of his names. Maybe he's just trying to take as many people as he can with him. So he could either be basically saying, I'm taking out as many as I can with me. There also may be a shot where Satan still says, you know what, I can do this. Why else would he try to tempt Jesus? Maybe he really thought he could trip up Christ. So I'm saying that Satan probably still thinks he's got a shot to take over the world here and a shot to really defeat God. And what a crazy thought that is. Absolutely crazy thought. Yeah, Mark. Who, Satan? Well, but the, but the thing is, we have the game book right in front of us, but just as there's millions of Americans and millions of people in the world that don't believe the game book that's right in front of us. I mean, how many millions of people have heard that there's a heaven and a hell, and unless you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're going to hell? They've heard that. That's clear in the Bible. And how many people say, well, yeah, but that doesn't apply. I mean, God has many different paths, many different ways to get to him. It's quite possible that the enemy looks at this, and he also says, you know what, I know what it says. But you know what? Isaiah 14 also makes it abundantly clear. Satan is so full of pride, and he's so blinded by pride, he's not thinking about anything other than himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is, he, as an angel, we always got to remember, see, and, I, and I've shared this with you before, and I grew up as a kid in Sunday school, I always put Satan and Jesus on the same level. And obviously, when you stop and look at it, Jesus created the angels. Um, 
you know, we asked about what was in Satan's mind. Well, we have a quote from Satan's heart where he says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That's Revelation 14, verses 13 and 14. That's what Satan thinks. He thinks he can be God, and he thinks that he can set up his own little kingdom. Arrogance, pride. And why did Satan fall? Pride. And what's one of the biggest sins that causes men and women to fall today? Pride. That's what the enemy still uses. His battle plan has not changed in 6,000 years. Anybody else have any final questions, comments here before we close up? Now, what do we say here after every Revelation study? And I don't want it to get to the point of it being repetitious that you guys automatically turn your ears off when we do this at the end of every Revelation study. As always, as a born-again believer in Christ, we're going to be raptured out of this and we're not going to be here. So why do we study this out? Well, we study this out so therefore we're not ignorant of the things that are to come. Now, number two, us having this knowledge of what this event is, this is supposed to also spur us on to say, I have unsaved friends and loved ones. You're going to go have lots of family time with lots of family members here in the next week. Some of it you like and some of it you don't like. I'm not saying you're going to work yourself into a conversation of Armageddon. Maybe it will come up, I don't know. But if nothing else, you know the truth. You know what happens to people if they are not saved. You know the realities of heaven and hell. You know if there is people that choose to reject Christ and they miss out on the rapture. We know what the bowl judgments, the trumpet judgments, the seal judgments are. We know these things. So therefore, this spurs us on to say, I care enough about you and I love you enough to tell you about Jesus Christ. Because that's why we study these things out, to have a knowledge of what is to come, so therefore we're not ignorant of the scriptures. Number two, to also say, Lord, I want to take this information and spur me on to be a better light and a witness in all that I say and all that I do. Problem is, there's too many Christians that want to stick their head in the sand and just say, well, just don't tell me. I don't want to hear about Satan. I don't want to hear about hell. Just, I want to live my own little world. Now, there's a fallen world out there that needs to know Christ, and it's our responsibility, a God-given mandate, to go tell people about Jesus. So let's take that and go with it then. So, appreciate you guys uh, coming out here on Wednesday, and I hope you have a blessed and safe Christmas. Don't forget Christmas Eve service, Saturday at 6.30, and we also have uh, Christmas service, 8.30 and 10, and we'll be back here next Wednesday, and uh, coming up in a couple weeks, New Year's Eve also. If you've signed up to bring food in for the uh, meals, please make sure you drop that off in the kitchen. Nancy will be in there directing that, and if you signed up to get a meal to be delivered to somebody or etc., go in there also. Nancy will get you all taken care of with that as well, too. Let's pray, and let you guys go. Heavenly Father, we just come to you now in the name of Jesus. And um, Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful as we sit here and talk about Armageddon. We also know that you just love us, Lord. You love us and you're coming back to get us. Thank you for that. And Lord, also as we sit here and talk about Israel, I think of that passage in Genesis where it says that you will bless those that bless Israel. Lord, and we want to pray for Israel. We want to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We want to pray for just the Jewish people to have their eyes and ears open to you. Lord, we love them because you love them. And Lord, we say thank you for what you've done. We say thank you for what you're doing. And help us just to keep your birth the focus of all that we do here over these next few days. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys have a good week and God bless.